Tony Beach, uh, who is a licensed uh, to preach in our presbytery, and uh, he's going to bring bringing the word to us. He also um, helps out with counseling here at our church, and uh, so uh, Tony, come on up. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Good to see you. Sound a, sound a little tired, but I think I just surprised you there. <laughs> well, it's great to have a chance to share with you again. Uh, it's a great topic. We're talking about forgiving today. So as a counselor, this is something that uh, is very near and dear to my heart. And we're back in Matthew. So I don't know, has it been about three weeks since Matthew or four weeks? Okay, so we, we've just jumped forward into Matthew 18 from the Sermon on the Mount. And we're in what's called Jesus' fourth discourse right now. So the Gospel of Matthew, you've probably heard it's structured around the five big speeches of Jesus. So discourse, another word for speeches, is uh, we're, we're in the fourth, and this one's focused on the church. So Jesus is talking about, well, what does it look like to be a leader in the church and be humble? Uh, how does God pursue the lost? What is church discipline? What does it look like to forgive? How does marriage work? And we're going to camp on forgiveness and forgiving today because that is, that's, a, that's at the heart of not just receiving the gospel, but just living the gospel out. And some people like to think that, well, church discipline, that's probably the toughest topic that Jesus is talking about in this discourse. I think if we think about our own experiences, we'll quickly realize forgiving is simple as it is to talk about. That's probably the hardest thing because church discipline can kind of be outside of me, but forgiveness is really personal. It, it really gets to the heart of things. And it uh, doesn't matter what age you're at. I know I've worked with a lot of kids doing kids ministry, being a pastor of families, having a family of our own. And... At any age, forgiveness is not easy. You quickly learn when you're working with kids that uh, you have way more conflict in life than you ever thought was possible. Like they can find anything to argue about, but it's kind of like us too. We just hide it better. But you realize if you're going to lead kids as a parent or as a leader, you got to figure out, you got to become an expert in not forced, maybe it's forced, uh, highly facilitated reconciliation strategies. (laughs) They're not going to do it, right? And and as you get going, you start to have some success. God blesses, and you can feel like, wow, I've got two kids that are both recognizing they they contributed to this problem, and and they're willing to, to ask for forgiveness and forgive, and it feels like this wonderful moment, and you get them into the room, and you're waiting for the magic to happen. And I think every time, it's like everybody forgets why they're there once they get in the room. And you have to ask, did you still want to apologize? And if you have this kid who has a lot of courage and they stick with it, you get an inspiring answer, right? Something like this. I am sorry. (laughs) And you just have to ask the other one, do you still want to forgive them? And if they're courageous, they'll say something like, I forgive you. It's barely audible, right? That's usually how it goes. It's a big step forward, but not exactly the moments that we live for as parents, right? We're thinking, that's it. But that's because reconciliation is hard. Any age. We might not sound like we're partially robotic or demon-possessed when we forgive somebody or apologize anymore. 
but it's kind of there, isn't it? Like it's like pulling teeth. It's, it's, uh, I think of forgiving someone who's hurt you deeply as kind of like a, a dental extraction where you discover the anesthesia is not working halfway through. And you know you got to get the bitterness out. Like it's, it's, it's poisoning your body. It's got to come out, but it hurts way more than you thought it would. Because bitterness kind of covers up pain. And when we try to pull it out, the pain comes out. And it's really hard. So we have a passage today that that's going to help us because it's going to help us to see it's worth doing. There's more at stake than we even think in forgiving. And there's also some clues in this passage that show us there's ways God can help us to get through this because it isn't that easy. So if you can turn with to Matthew 18 uh, verses 21 to 35 in your worship guide or in your Bible with me, let's, let's take a look at this this passage and this parable of Jesus about forgiving. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not repay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The Gospel of the Lord. Father, we just ask for your help again. We thank you for the, the awesome messages and the uh, songs and, uh, and what's been said already in the service. And thank you. Your grace is great. Your love is overwhelming. And we just pray for help to make that connection that it could be expressed in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a classic parable of Jesus. It's, it's, it follows a really familiar format with parables of Jesus. It's, it's not an allegory where everything symbolizes something else, but it, uh, it does stand for things. And usually the characters in Jesus' parables, they stand for, they stand for people in real life. And Jesus makes this one really easy. We don't have to guess who's who in the last verse in 35. He says, uh, the king represents God and the servants represent us. 
And, and this parable opens with Peter asking, how many times do I forgive someone? Seven times? Now, that might not sound super generous to us, but back then, uh, the rabbis would teach you, you could forgive two or three times, and that was how far you let it go. Otherwise, someone's just taking advantage of you. So Peter's thinking, okay, how gracious should we be? Seven times, that's like double what the rabbis do. And you have to love Jesus' response. He doesn't tell them why, he just says, no, 77 times. He's not saying you should count, right? He's saying, basically, forgive until you lose count and keep forgiving. That was a radical idea back then, obviously. But we might be familiar with this concept now, but it's pretty much just as radical today, isn't it? The idea to forgive and forgive and forgive. So Jesus, he knows it's hard, and he shares this whole parable that we just read to help reorient Peter and the disciples and all of us, help to reorient our minds to how does forgiveness work, really? And why do we need to keep forgiving when it's so hard? The key to understanding this parable, like, uh, like many parables, is to find, the, find kind of the punchline or the twist in the parable. It's a device that Jesus uses many times where you're not quite sure what it's supposed to mean, but then he just tells you one thing that sort of surprises you, interprets the whole thing, and can, can lead to a response that's intentional. He's looking for some kind of response inside of us, some kind of reaction. And verse 35 is where we get that in this parable. He explains right there, the, the hypocrite in this story is not some investment banker who has set up a Ponzi scheme and cheated people out of millions of dollars. It's not some corporate crook, the people that we kind of like to get down on and complain about. But he says right here, the villain in this story is us. If we do not forgive our brother or our sister from the heart. So he turns the tables right at that moment. And he tells us, guess what? Your whole relationship with God depends on, are you willing to forgive? There's three different scenes in this parable. Each scene gives us some really, a really good illustration of why it's important to forgive and some of the how behind forgiving. Uh, so we're going to look at these three scenes and look at those illustrations. And we're going to look first at the first scene which tells us we've been forgiven much more than we can imagine, and we should emulate that. We're going to look at the second scene, which shows us we're called to lavish that same kind of grace on others and not be stingy. And the third scene we're going to look at, and we're going to look, look to see how it says we're meant to forgive much deeper than just mere words or actions that look like forgiveness. So it all starts out in verse 23. That's the setting of the first scene. Jesus tells us that the king is settling accounts with his servants, and now we know the one servant with the big debt is us. It's not some bad guy out there. It's, it's you and me. And so we need to look at this debt. I mean, he owes 10,000 talents. Uh, if you're familiar with what a talent is, that's a lot of money. Just one talent is equal to 70 pounds of gold or silver. I don't think many of us have 70 pounds of gold or silver lying around in the attic, but... Back then, that was considered equivalent to about 6,000 days wages. 6,000 days of work. I'm not sure how many years that is. I think it's somewhere in the low teens, but uh, that's a lot of wages. 
What's 10,000 talents worth of 6,000 days of wages, though? You do the quick math, that's 60 million days worth of wages. That's, that's, that's probably a bigger number than anybody listening to Jesus can comprehend. I can't comprehend 60 million days of work and what the wages look like. Um, in verse 24, we read, the servant didn't just mismanage the king's funds and make a bunch of bad decisions for the king. He, he owed the king personally this money. So he didn't just squander the king's funds on something crazy. He did it on himself. And he personally owed a debt of 10,000 talents. So remember back then they didn't have like penny stocks where you could dump $50 million in and lose it overnight. Like back in the ancient world, I don't know how you could lose 10,000 talents on yourself. I mean, is, is Jesus talking about someone who had a chariot race betting problem and it was really bad at betting and never figured it out? Do you go, did he go out and hire his own personal army for a year? I don't know. How do you spend that much money and waste it? And then how do you, how do you end up in this high position when you obviously had to be so creative with the ways you wasted the money and have such bad judgment and such bad ethics? How do you get into a position like that in the first place? Like, this does not make any sense. I don't think it made any sense to Jesus' audience if they thought about it. And I think it's not supposed to make sense to them or us either. Like, this is a crazy situation. This can't be. And he's saying, this is us in our sin. This is absurd and crazy. And you think about it. What is our position? It's, it's the highest position in the world. We're sons and daughters of God, right? We're, we're born children of the king of the universe. We have the highest position possible. He has entrusted his creation to us. He's given us the greatest gifts. And in our freedom, we don't just mismanage what he gives us, our relationship with him, right? Like we, we squander it completely. We go from the, the heights of this intimate, glorious relationship with God down to the depths of sin and shame and ugliness. And we leave this glorious, awesome life in exchange for, for dirt, really. Out of the muck and mire is what uh, the Psalms say. It's a massive rebellion. It's a massive debt. And in our sin, we don't just mismanage. We live like enemies of God. Um, the Bible says we, we live for our pride, like, like David was saying this morning. We, we, we pursue our glory. We crave it. We, we crave our love and acceptance over anything else, for anybody else. We crave control. We crave pleasure. And, and God tends to get pushed off the throne in our lives. We climb onto it. And uh, we want God and other people to serve our expectations, our agenda. and. Scripture says we become enemies. We go from this high position down to this lowest position. And it's crazy because God's good. And we squandered everything. And it doesn't make sense. It's crazy. And we've racked up a debt with God that we can't even measure. And the, the point of this scene is not that we get overwhelmed with this guilt, but we realize something amazing has happened. For those of us who have seen that this debt is infinite. 
It deserves eternal condemnation. Those of us who've cried out to God and say, I'm sorry, have mercy on me. We've discovered we have a king and a heavenly father who in verse 27, he has pity even from the worst sin that you can imagine. And he says, I will forgive you every penny and it will be paid for by my son because I have such a great love for you. Matthew 20 makes it clear Jesus gave his life as a ransom, which is literally a payment for slaves to pay them out of their slavery, to buy, buy them out of slavery so he could bring us back to him through the cross. And Jesus raised to life like we celebrate at Easter so he could bring us back to him and we could know nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. That's what, that's what Jesus is calling to mind here. And for all of us who trust in him, what he's saying in this opening scene is, don't forget. You know, don't forget you have been forgiven more than you can imagine. Don't forget the the compassion your heavenly father has for you, that you can have such an awful debt and he could be moved towards you in the midst of that, even though you deserve judgment. Don't forget the love of God and the mercy of God. You've been forgiven more than you can imagine. And his call in the next scene is now go lavish that grace on other people. As we get to the, uh, the second scene uh, of the parable, that's, that's the message, pass on this grace. Verse 28, we, we see a servant, he's free of his debt. You know, what would, what would most of us do if we're free of an inconceivable debt? Like, we would go celebrate, right? Like we would call our friends, we'd have, we'd have a party. But this, this servant, he actually goes out in verse 28, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is about 100 days of wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. That sounds pretty reasonable, right? Like, yeah, I was just forgiven 60 million days worth of debt. Now I'm going to go get some spending money and go choke it out of somebody? Like, that doesn't make sense either. It's crazy. You see the little theme in this parable that's going on. It's what we do, right, though? Like, we can say, oh, my goodness, this guy's being crazy. But if somebody takes $12,000 from us, which is about three months of wages, 100 days wages these days, or if they do something that ruins three months of our lives, our first impulse isn't usually to think, oh man, this, this is a great opportunity to show somebody the grace of Christ and confront them in love and hopefully restore them. And that's not our first impulse, right? It's not my first impulse. My, my first impulse is to just imagine calling one of those attorneys on one of those billboards that looks like they're in a fight club and get him going, and he'll take care of my problems, right? He'll make them pay. I don't know if you've ever imagined doing that, but we were driving in Kentucky last month, and we saw a billboard for an attorney that was nicknamed the Hammer. <laughs> and I, I thought, this is really funny. It's got to be a joke. Like, who, who gets quality clients with a nickname like that? And then we drove past 50 more billboards with the hammer on them, and we realized, apparently, a lot of people who can pay for that kind of service do follow that impulse 
and get a guy like that on their case. And in the Hammer's defense, I know he's going after big insurance companies, and uh, there's, there's some value in that, but uh, I think most of us know that's not the best impulse to follow, right? Like, the, the rules of conflict, you escalate, the other party escalates higher than you, and you just start to create a whole huge mess. Most of us know enough not to get into that. We've learned that lesson. And I think we usually just end up doing one of three things. Um, first thing, we can just slowly start to freeze this person out of our life in a, in a very Christian way, you know, not, not bring any attention to it, but kind of in this passive-aggressive, Christian-y kind of way until they make it up to us. We're just going to go cold on you. Or we, we find people who care for us, and we try to help them care for us really well by caring about what's happened to us and not caring for that person, kind of building a wall of people around us. Or we do, number three, we do a mix of both of those. And if we're living with this person we have the problem with, it gets really complicated, it gets really messed up. But one way or another, we just end up letting our heart turn cold and start to turn to ice towards that person until they make it up to us, because they should know. We protect ourselves with people around us. We protect ourselves with space. And that's not a whole lot different than taking them and grabbing them by the neck, is it? It's just a slow death instead of the fast one in the relationship. And if we're, if we're honest, looking at this parable, we have to ask, why is it that we can know everything that we're forgiven of? And we can be such complete hypocrites in our hearts towards people. Like, why is that so hard to get past? I think uh, James 4, we were there in uh, the men's ministry this past week. Uh, James 4 gives, uh, gives a great explanation. James says, you know, what causes quarrels and fights within you, among you? What causes that? And he says, is it not your passions that are at war within you? And he points right to the heart of it. You know, it's easy. It's so easy to get wrapped up in ourselves, in our goals, in, in our respect, in our cravings for love, our cravings for acceptance and control. That when somebody sins against me, I just get hypersensitized to it because they're threatening something that I feel like I need and that's deeply wounding if they try to take it away. And their sin against me, it starts to threaten me because it's, it's, it's really threatening and it bothers me 10 times more than it should. And, and it makes me feel more upset than I should. And I feel like there is no way I can show grace to this person. I mean, God can do it because he's God. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm a person. And we get in that logic really easy, but we forget the message of the gospel. It's Christ is in us. His spirit is inside of us. We can, we can do things through him that we can't do on our own. And it's kind of like Augustine who said, bitterness is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. When we're living with this bitterness and we're just pushing it aside, usually because we don't want it, we'll feel guilty if we look at it. It just sits there and slowly poisons us. And we're resisting the grace of God in our lives. And Jesus tells us here that if we think we are justified in hanging on to this, we might not even know Christ. Like To receive the gospel is to express the gospel in life. 
Matthew 7 says the same measure you, you, you use will be used against you and even more. Even more. That's, that's the message Jesus has for us so far. We've been forgiven much more than we can imagine. If we really want to receive that forgiveness, we have to be willing to embrace it as a lifestyle. And the good news is, I mean, I don't think Jesus is saying if you struggle with this, you're, you're in danger. But he is saying, you need to get help. And I want to help you do this. That's, that's my grace. This is what this parable is meant to provoke, I think, when we look at the rest of Scripture. And I'm, and I'm guessing most of us are there. That's, that's where I feel like I'm at. We're, we're saying, I want help with this. This isn't easy. It can feel impossible at times. You know, I don't want bitterness to rule my life. And if that's you, the, the final scene of this parable, it becomes a lot less threatening when you start to look at what Jesus is implying by it. Verse 35, it can become a source of hope. Jesus says in that verse, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a shocking verse at first, but there's, there's an encouraging nugget right here. And you're probably noticing it. Jesus is implying it's possible to forgive someone with more than just words, more than just actions, but a kind of forgiveness that comes from the very heart of us. Like that is possible. And we get a clue of what, what that can look like in action in verse 27. If we go back to the king's response to the servant, God's response to us, the, the word here used for pity is, uh, it's an interesting Greek word. I'll probably butcher it, but it's splachnastes. It's like one of those Greek words you can clear your throat out with, but it kind of sounds like what it means because it means compassion from the gut. You know, it's like, oh, I feel it. It's deep kind of compassion. So the kind of compassion you have when you're worried about someone you really love or if you're a parent and uh, your kid falls down, I didn't realize it was possible to just feel like pain in your stomach, but if it looks like they got hurt crashing their bike, that's like the immediate response. It's this kind of emotion that comes from deep when someone's caught up in something bad and you love them and you can see it's destroying their life and they're desperate for help and you want to help them and you want to rescue or you want to do something to help them. That's the kind of heart God is working to build up and to provide in us. We see it all over scripture. We could cite examples. We don't have time here, but Think of Paul, how he says, I'm in pains of childbirth that Christ would be formed in you. That's, that's the kind of compassion God's looking to produce inside of us. And the Bible makes it clear this is a kind of love. It only comes from God's spirit. It has to come from him. It comes through faith. It comes through dependence on Christ, realizing, man, I need you to do this inside of me. And it comes through something very simple. It comes through thinking about people the, the way God thinks about them and just taking on his perspective. Romans 12 says we get transformed by the renewing of our mind. We, we just need to be thinking from God's perspective about people and things. and He'll transform us. The mind set on the spirit is life, Romans 8. And practically, this just means, you know, remember, this person is responsible for their sin, but they're also harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Like Jesus says in Matthew 9, we need to remember they're blinded, they're held captive by their sin. We need to remember that 
They're struggling. They're human beings. They're, they're just like us, struggling with this flesh that feels like it needs stuff that's opposite of God, that hurts people, and they're, and they're twisted. We need to empathize and grasp. We don't know what their past is like. We don't know how hard it is for them to see the gospel. We don't know how hard it is even for what, what we're doing to them is to them. And we need to recognize they're made in God's image, too, and they have infinite value. This is a person, no matter how bad it gets, they're still worth loving. They're still worth Christ's work on the cross. They're still worth suffering for. And like we we talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, we need to hope. We need to hope all things for them and think about, well, what would it be like if God sets them free from this kind of sin or character in their life? How much better would they be? How would they feel about what they've done to me? I mean, how sorry would they be? What would it be like to experience reconciliation and have a relationship brought back from the dead? Like if we can be thinking about things and and be renewing our minds from God's perspective, that's when we get in touch with the spirit of God. That's when we start to feel the compassion and the love of God. And that deep compassion can start to well up inside because that comes from him. That comes from being united with Christ in the spirit. And if and you might find this is something still hard to do, it's hard to get in that mindset. And if that's the case for you, I mean, you probably need to get some help because some things go really, really deep. We could talk about really deep stuff, but there's some things that are really, really hard that have repeated so many times that it's hard just to, just to move to a different mindset. And what scripture tells us is we can cry out to God we can tell him why it hurts, why we're angry. He's a father who wants to hear, who wants to carry us. And, and he wants to give us comfort. He wants to show us and help us to think about how much he cares for us, how he feels with us, how he's angry about what's happened. He's fighting for us. Well, at the same time, he has compassion for this, the person who hurt us, and he's fighting to win them to himself as well. And he wants to to help us see how he wants to set us free from bitterness. And usually when it's hard, you need to to get a friend involved just to help you work through this. You need a a mentor or a counselor who can come alongside of you. And it takes some time, but you can get through this. You can get through it. And it's worth it. Your heart can be freed from bitterness. You can experience the love of God that is deeper than any, any love we know. And it can live inside of you more and more. We can have the strength to love like God loves. And, and, and at a point like this, it's good to clarify. This doesn't mean that, uh, that you, you restore everything in the relationship. Just because you're at that point, you get to that point where you feel like you can forgive someone. Um, if you've forgiven someone in, our heart, in your heart, they still need to repent for reconciliation to happen. They still need to recognize and, and confess what they've done for full reconciliation. And, and even if they do repent, you don't, you don't restore trust with them completely right away. Scripture is all about, uh, especially Proverbs, you trust someone as, as much as they prove themselves trustworthy to be, and you want to build it. But you don't just give it all back and open yourself up to another, another hurt, another, another loss. You be careful with it. We're called to be wise. We're called to set boundaries. And if you're in a physically or emotionally abusive relationship, you need to get help and you need to get protection. Forgiveness does not mean opening yourself up to be harmed. And love 
Love in God is not an enabling love. It confronts people. It holds them accountable. But it also doesn't harden its heart. It also craves reconciliation. And it also wants what's best. and doesn't stop wanting what's best for the person who's wronged us. Forgiving someone before God means we never stop being for them. We remember how great his grace is towards us. We look to lavish it upon others and it comes from the heart. That's, that's the forgiveness that's in Christ. I'm sure a bunch of us here have uh, read Louis Zamperini's biography. There's a movie made about it, Unbroken. It, uh, it's probably the only biography I've read faster than any fiction novel. Like it's just, it's an amazing story and it's a great illustration of this kind of forgiveness. He was a California kid. He grew up in the thirties and, uh, and he survives all kinds of things. Like he's caught up in some petty crime and, and, and problems when he's young and he's, he's facing racism and he gets through that. He, he ends up becoming an Olympian, a distance runner, and he, and he faces the temptations of that. But he really gets into the heavy stuff when he's in World War II, and he's stranded out on the Pacific for 46 days. And he, gets, he survives that somehow, only to enter something worse with a Japanese POW camp and a series of camps where he's brutalized, he's attacked, and there's this one officer that seems to have it out for him and does things that are, that are almost unspeakable just in terms of making his life miserable. And as you read the book, you get tempted to think, well, once the war is over, if he just makes it out, it's going to be better. But what happens if you've been through that stuff? Like once the war is over, it's almost worse because now he's alone and he's got post-traumatic stress. He's got night terrors at night. He's alcoholic and his, his relationship with his wife is about to fall apart. And the only thing that seems to motivate him is this idea of I'm going to go back to Japan. I'm going to find that officer and I'm going to get my revenge. That's the one driving thing in his life. And you look at someone in that state and you're like, is there any hope? Like that's when bitterness has taken over your life. And you're like, I don't know. He's got good reason to be bitter. Um, that's, uh, that's the point where somehow God reaches him with the gospel. Like that story in itself is just a reason to get the book and read it. It's, it's quite amazing. And overnight the alcoholism stops and the dreams stop. And to everybody's surprise, this, this bitterness that he had towards his captors, it starts to fade away. And Louis starts to feel compassion for these, these oppressive officers that made his life awful in the POW camps. And he decides, I'm still going to Japan. And uh, Helen Brand, the author, she describes how surprised his former oppressors are. They're in, a, they're in prison and they're all gathered together. And Louis comes in to speak to them. And she says, his hands are extended with a radiant smile on his face. And he goes on to tell them without minimizing their sin, without suggesting they should just be freed from the consequences. He goes and tells them how God forgave him and how Christ has changed his heart and he forgives them completely. And he wants them to taste in the gospel and experience the same thing. It's just an amazing story. He goes on to, to uh, found a camp for troubled boys in California that helps hundreds of boys, shares the gospel with many of them. Uh, years later, he's invited to be the torchbearer in the Nagano Winter Olympics as this embodiment of what it means to re- reconcile post-war. 
Like God just shows his grace and mercy off through Louis. And I think it's one of the most powerful modern stories of grace I've ever heard and forgiveness being expressed. And I think it's just a great note to end on and think about this is the kind of forgiveness God wants to fill our lives with. These are the kind of powerful things he wants to do. So let's just take a moment and pray. Father, this is a, it's a deep topic. There's a lot more to talk about here than we could possibly do in one morning. And we know there's some of us who've maybe experienced things uh, that are just like being in a prisoner of war camp. And maybe it's worse because maybe some of us experienced that from someone we trusted who was supposed to protect us, not a political enemy. And we just want to take a moment to say thank you. You care for the brokenhearted. You save the crushed in spirit. You do bring justice for the oppressed. And in this amazing thing called the gospel, you also died to save oppressors and the oppressed. And we just thank you for the great debt of sin you've taken, not just for the world, but for us personally. Like it's a crazy debt. You've washed all the guilt. You've washed all the shame away every ounce. And just ask for help that we could accept the call to lavish the same kind of grace on others. We pray for help. We pray even in this moment, would you bring someone to mind in our life who maybe we need to extend that kind of grace and forgiveness to? Just pray that you'd help us to consider them as we just take a moment to reflect right now about what would what it would mean to do that. allows us to forgive others from the heart and forgive just like you forgave us. We pray for help uh, wherever we're at with whoever it is that we could find your hand pulling us forward and find the way forward in this. And we just ask for your help. Thank you. We can celebrate communion right now to celebrate what that grace means to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.